Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. It's the environment, stupid, and too often, it's a black and white issue. Unfortunately, the vast majority of those dumps are in African-American neighborhoods, so environmental racism is alive and doing quite well here in South Carolina. Coming up, politics and pollution, black voters and green issues. Also, consumer spending may save our economy from recession, but could it destroy our planet in the process? Consumption of resources is the significant consideration in whether we're going to have enough resources. Population alone is only part of the equation. And just when you thought it was safe to go back into the water... Spotting sharks. This week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, in for Steve Kerwood. South Carolina plays a pivotal role in presidential politics, and not just for candidates. It's also an opportunity for African Americans, who make up half the voters in the state's Democratic primary, to have their issues heard. And one of their major concerns is the environment. We sent Living on Earth's Jeff Young to South Carolina to talk green issues with black voters. If you want a quick check of the political pulse in African-American communities, put on your Sunday best and get to the church house. At Friendship Baptist in Columbia, Reverend Anthony Dix told his church they wouldn't just hear his sermon. They'd hear speakers from the Clinton and Obama campaigns. It has been a long tradition in the African-American culture. It's critical, my brothers and sisters. It's critical. Just across town at Zion Baptist, John Edwards attended a Martin Luther King Day ceremony. We spent a great deal of time talking about the legacy of Dr. King and particularly the issue of economic justice, which has been central to uh, my presidential campaign and central to my life. All over South Carolina, politics found a place in the pulpit, and it was a good chance to ask churchgoers about the environmental issues on their minds. Emily Washington and Bob McIntyre say green energy and global warming are important. Absolutely. It's the life of the planet, so it's top tier. Personally, I'm interested in oil and what they can do to change our dependency on it, because I feel we have the resources here that are just not being used. Well, that's not so different from what you might hear from any demographic group. Polls show people across the board concerned about the changing climate and soaring energy costs. But Shirley McClary of Columbia zeroed in on an issue she thinks is of particular interest to African-American voters. Well, all this uh, dumping that they're doing now in South Carolina, that's very much a concern of ours because we are the one who's living there and our children is the one who's being affected by this. South Carolina NAACP conference president Lonnie Randolph Jr. says this notion of environmental justice could be a strong motivator for black voters. Of course it is. It's a quality of life issue. Environmental issues produce health problems. This is one of the worst states in the nation as it pertains to the health of African Americans. 
And uh, unfortunately, the vast majority of those dumps are in African-American neighborhoods. So environmental racism is alive and doing quite well here in South Carolina. Democratic State Representative Joe Neal sees that firsthand. His rural, largely African-American district on the outskirts of Columbia has to deal with mercury in the rivers, nuclear waste, and contaminated groundwater. We have a Superfund site. Uh, happens to be right across the street from the uh, nuclear fuel reprocessing plant. And when you talk about South Carolina as a whole, the state has 24 Superfund sites. 23 of them are in African-American communities. Um, so what we find in this state, I think it's pretty typical for the country. Pollution and, and waste tends to follow the path of least resistance. Do people who are suffering the brunt of that, do they connect that to something they should uh, vote on? Well, often they do. I, I think that many will make the decision as to who they will vote for, not explicitly on the basis of their own uh, situation, but on the larger sense of fairness and justice in all policies, and particularly in environmental policy. The endorsement of an African-American state lawmaker is highly coveted in this highly competitive state. Neil was considering Barack Obama and one other candidate. I also like John Edwards and his emphasis on everyday working people and fairness and justice. But I think Senator Edwards has a, he comes into politics as a trial attorney, and he's used to fighting. Politics is a little different here. Um, we need to be able to build consensus. And I think that Obama is able to do that, and that's why I chose him. Upstate in South Carolina, in Spartanburg, I visited another lawmaker who's tackling environmental problems. State Representative Harold Mitchell shows me around a contaminated mill property. This is where, um, as you can see, a lot of the debris that was uncovered, 1,500 tons of coal ash debris and hazardous materials was removed uh, from the site. The Arkwright neighborhood of Spartanburg also has two Superfund cleanup sites, an old fertilizer plant and a closed city landfill, all side by side in a black neighborhood. On this side of town, folks back then thought that it was uh, an area where that's where they consider the people as nobody. So that's where that landfill is located, and you can see all of the, the industrial facilities were located, you know, right fence line to the uh, neighboring community. But, but, but those nobodies, in this case, that was you and your family. Yes. Uh, you can look directly out of my window as a child, and I could see the landfill. My sister, she died of a sepsis omphalitis, a germ poisoning, and my father, he died of lymphoma. And we, I mean, throughout the community, uh, it's like every other house or every house. You know, then you start to see a, a pattern of problems there. Mitchell, too, fell ill with something doctors were not able to diagnose. He had time to connect some dots. The toxic sites, the health issues, the abandoned housing and crime, all in his neighborhood. Now, Mitchell is director of a project called Regenesis that's brought in new public housing, a health clinic, and job training. Some businesses are even coming back. Mitchell wants to back the candidate who would do the most for projects like Regenesis. At first, he thought that was Obama. But over the summer, Mitchell was invited to Washington to testify at a Senate hearing on environmental justice. The senator chairing that hearing, Hillary Clinton. Today's hearing represents the first Senate hearing in history devoted to environmental justice. 
you know, sitting in that hearing, Senator Clinton put it in perspective so well. She was able to capsulize it and look at solutions, and, and you would need just that, someone that can listen. And, and as she stated during this campaign, someone that can actually manage the change. Clinton and Obama co-sponsored an environmental justice bill three years ago. But Norris McDonald of the African American Environmentalists Association says since then, Clinton has been much more aggressive on the issue. Well, Hillary Clinton, I would have to say, on environmental justice is probably leading the way in addressing that issue. Are you surprised that Senator Obama has not uh, shown more leadership on this issue? It's not puzzling at all. He's appealing to the white vote. And if he is perceived as being black, and when I say that, I mean Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton complaining about racial issues, it makes whites uncomfortable. And I can understand his not wanting to be pigeonholed, quote, as the black candidate, um, but it has negative consequences when then he can't address substantive issues such as environmental justice. McDonald says Clinton has advanced environmental justice through her policy and shrewdly positioned herself politically. She's outflanked Obama on an issue that could prove potent to African Americans around the country who would make environmental justice part of their voting decision. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Columbia, South Carolina. Students nationwide say global warming is making them hot as hell, and they're not going to take it any longer. At the end of this month, in a demonstration reminiscent of the 1960s, they'll be conducting what organizers say will be the largest teach-in in history, involving millions of students on over 1,500 college campuses and high schools. The teach-in is just one in a number of events, part of Focus the Nation, Global Warming Solutions for America. David Solheim is president of the student body at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Also joining us from the University of Portland in Oregon is Lacey Riddle. Hello, both. Uh, David, let's start with you. What are you guys doing there? Well, at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, it's really something exciting and unprecedented. We've got about 12 lectures lined up from professors from a variety of disciplines trying to show the pervasiveness of climate change and how that affects each area of campus, not just the sciences, in addition, you know, we have a low-carbon footprint meal and an example of a sustainable dorm room set up on campus as well. A sustainable dorm room. We, I, I think many parents would just, you know, settle for a clean dorm room, but what's, <laughs> what's a sustainable dorm room? Well, a sustainable dorm room will be set up with all of the standard furniture which comes in any dorm room on campus, but all of the consumer products within that dorm room will be sustainable products that we've had donated from different businesses around Lincoln. And so we have an organization on campus called the Green Builders who are putting that together and just showing students that even though you're away at college and stuffed away in a little box on the 10th floor, you can still contribute um, in a big way to climate change. And Lacey, what are you going to do at the University of Portland? Well, we've actually got two major events going on. During our day-long teaching, it's the same thing kind of as uh, University of Nebraska. We've got about 26 panel sessions where teachers from all disciplines will sit down together and really encourage their students to either not attend class and attend these panel sessions that are relevant to their classes, or if they can't, you know, sacrifice one day, they'll sit down and really address the issue in class for at least a few minutes. And then come 5 o'clock, we'll all convert over to the Child Center and really warm up with some live sketch comedy that's climate change themed. And then we'll also have a local band, Hillstop, who plays on half-recycled instruments play. I, I must say, you both sound very enthusiastic, but, you know, your generation, my perception is, is that you're, you know, not known for your activism. And I'm wondering uh, how 
students on your campuses are, are responding to you? Well, I don't know if, if either of you read Thomas Friedman's Generation Q, um, but apparently we are generation quiet, and that is kind of evident as, you know, we are the Facebook generation, we live our lives online. Um, but I think we're realizing that, you know, just saying that you're doing something online and actually doing something in person won't invoke the uh, our older generations. It won't really address the issues and make them concerned about our future. Um, so I think we're kind of stepping out of the box finally and realizing our place in society and really addressing our own civic responsibilities. And now you're seeing, I think, activism flourishing at universities. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, the Tom Friedman article was, uh, I think, inflammatory to young people who are trying to be active all across the nation. Um, and it really, really forced us to kind of face what I believe is an evolution in activism. I think that our generation is more service-oriented than any other before us. Um, but we want to encourage that traditional aspect of activism, too, writing letters and being vocal and you know, showing up at the ballot box to, to really affect a change here. I believe there is definitely a, a huge, a huge, huge need to raise awareness amongst our political leaders. Um, they are the people who determine our future. It's their legislation that will change my generation's future and prepare us for transitioning into the clean energy economy. I've always urged um, our students to look at the candidates, look at their stances on issues, and, and make climate change you know, one of those deciding factors in who you cast your ballot for in November. Well, David, Lacey, thank you very much, and good luck with the Focus of the Nation. Thanks so much, Bruce. Thank you much. We appreciate it. Coming up, people power to power people. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. So steep and deep was the recent slide on the world stock markets that politicians began uttering the dreaded R-word. To stave off a recession or even worse, the Feds lowered a key interest rate, calling on Americans to do what Americans do best, consume, save the world's economy by generating demand for stuff. But Jared Diamond, in a recent New York Times op-ed, warns that our current consumption isn't saving the planet, it's destroying it. Jared Diamond is a professor of geography at UCLA and best-selling author of Collapsed and Guns, Germs, and Steel. I called Professor Diamond at his home in Bel Air, California, and asked him why he's focusing on consumption when others say the real problem is the world's rapidly growing population. I'm looking at consumption as opposed to population because consumption of resources um, is the significant consideration in whether we're going to have enough resources. Population alone is only part of the equation. What counts is the number of people times how much on the average each of those people consume. And that means that consumption rates rise either if population rises, which is doing slowly, or if per person consumption rates rise, which they're doing rapidly as a result of China and India catching up and as a result of people from all over the world doing their best to try to move to the U.S. and Europe and Australia and become first world consumers. In your um, article, basically, you say that the world population has 6.5 billion people, um, that will have 9 billion people by mid-century. But if we all consumed like Americans that the rest of the world would add up to 72 billion people. Americans and other first worlders, that's to say Europeans and Japanese and Australians, consume 32 times more resources. That's to say we consume 32 times more gas and 32 times more metals. But by the same token, we put out 32 times more wastes like plastics and greenhouse gases than do citizens of third world countries. 
And that means that one American um, equals 32 Kenyans in his or her impact on the rest of the world. So as long as Kenyans consume like Kenyans do now, we don't have anything to worry about in terms of the resources that we need and utilize. That wrong statement would have been true if we already were consuming at a sustainable rate. But we are unfortunately not consuming at a sustainable rate. So even if those Kenyans and South Americans and Southeast Asians, even if they didn't exist, the first world itself is on a non-sustainable course. And then if you throw in the desire of people in China and India and everywhere else to come up to first world living standards, that means that we've got the equivalent, not of the six and a half, six and a half billion people that we can't support now, but the equivalent of 72 billion people who we won't be able to support even faster. So in terms of just growth, basically we have a small population growth here in the United States, uh, declining population growth in some places in Europe, but in developing countries, they really do have explosive population growths. That is true, and it's not the biggest problem. It is true that countries like Kenya and Pakistan and some other developing countries have high population growth rates, and that is a real tragedy for Kenya and Pakistan, which are trying to improve their lot, but are getting overwhelmed by more people to feed. But it's not a tragedy for the rest of the world because those people in rapidly growing third world countries don't consume very much. The real tragedy for the world is the growth rate of population and consumption in the first world. Now, you're correct that the homegrown population of Japan and Europe is actually shrinking, but that's more than offset by all those immigrants pouring into Europe and the United States, and increasingly even Japan, as a result of third world people who just can't wait for Kenya to achieve first world living standards, but want those living standards now. And as a result, they move across the Mediterranean into Europe, and they move across the border into the United States, and they become first world consumers. So China, say, with its 1.3 billion people, no concern as long as they stay third world and don't aspire to the first world lifestyle. One of the biggest economic facts of our time is that China has been very successful at catching up with the first world. China's goal is to achieve first world living standards, which means to consume the way we are consuming now. Well, if China alone catches up to the first world and nothing in the world changes, that doubles consumption of the whole world. If India and China catch up, that triples the consumption of the whole world, regardless of what happens in Africa and South America. The way we live right now, do we have a vested interest in the continuing poverty of places and so many people around the world? You might say that we have a, we have a short-term, short-sighted vested um, interest. It's the vested interest of a ostrich with its head buried firmly in the sand as the lion creeps up behind it. The ostrich has a vested interest in not seeing the lion. And because that means that the ostrich will be happy for the next three seconds until the lion springs. Yes, the United States has a vested interest in ignoring the problems of the rest of the world, but we can't ignore those problems. We've known ever since September 11, 2001, that the rest of the world now has ways of sharing their unhappiness with us if they do feel unhappy. So it's just not possible for us to ignore the rest of the world. So what country do you think we should emulate? First of all, we should emulate ourselves in certain respects. Let's not just bash the United States. The United States in the last 30 years has done very well in dealing with 
problems of air quality. We now have federal standards and state and city standards for air quality, and the result is that although there are lots more people and far more cars in Los Angeles than there were when I moved here in 1966, air quality is better. Other countries that we can emulate are European countries in their energy consumption, or even the Asian, the Himalayan country of Bhutan, that small, rather poor Asian country whose king has proclaimed that their goal is not to maximize the gross national product. Bhutan's goal is instead to maximize gross national happiness. And that's really what it's about for us, too. So if we consumed like the Europeans, we wouldn't necessarily have a, a decrease in our standard of living, even though our consumption would go down. If you look at Europe, we would have an increase in our standard of living if we decreased our consumption rates. Just think of Europe's standard of living. Just think of what really counts in standard of living. Standard of living is not a matter of jumping into your, uh, your Humvee and roaring off with your one person in your Humvee down the freeway. Standard of living is access to medical care, quality of public schools, support for the arts, whether you've got a pension in your old age. By any of those measures, the standard of living in Europe is a little higher than that in the United States, even though Europe's consumption rates are lower. What this means is that it's perfectly possible to cut our consumption even while raising our standard of living. And the reason is simply that a lot of our consumption is just wasteful and doesn't contribute to our standard of living. Owning a Hummer or an SUV does not increase your lifespan and increase your access to medical care. So, Professor, how would you get Americans to consume less? My contribution to getting Americans to consume less um, is to do interviews with you and to write books and to write op-ed pieces. But Americans themselves are going to get themselves to consume less by confronting the reality of how the world is going and then acting in the best interests of themselves and their children. Dick Cheney, our vice president, attributed to him at least as a frequently quoted statement, and let's see how it goes. It's roughly like, the American way of life is not open to negotiation. Yes, we are not going to negotiate the American way of life with Iran, but we are going to negotiate the American way of life with ourselves. We are the ones who are going to have to make these decisions. Do you think it would take a dramatic makeover of the American economy in order to sustain a first world lifestyle, but make it sustainable? It would take a slow continuation of the changes that we're already seeing. For example, gas consumption. The price of gas here in LA is now up to $3.80, and recently it may have topped $4, and it will undoubtedly go over $4 soon. And let's see what happens when the price of gas goes up to 5 or $6. In Europe, the price of gas is the equivalent of 8 or $9. That's part of the reason why Europeans um, tend to have gas-efficient cars. So $4 gasoline has already pushed lots of people into Priuses. I'm, I'm looking forward to $6 and $7 gasoline. i got to tell you, i got a Prius. I am the proud over owner of a Volvo and my wife also. When and if our Volvos ever fail we will either buy a Volvo hybrid, if by then Volvo has hybrids, or I will emulate you and buy a Prius. But right now, I mean, you got two Volvos. You're part of the pollution, not part of the solution. I am part of the pollution. On the other hand, my defense is that I use my Volvos 3,000 miles a, week, a year to run around and do virtuous things. Professor, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. You are welcome. Mm -hmm. 
Jared Diamond is a professor at UCLA and author of Collapsed and Guns, Germs, and Steel. When John Lennon recorded this song back in 1971, it soon became an anthem for a generation. But today, a new generation is embracing the song's slogan and message. They're saying power to the people is an idea whose time has finally come, but climate change means time is running out. Power to the People is the name of a new collaborative campaign organized by Earth Action Network and the World Future Council. The goal? To get states to adopt legislation to decentralize the nation's power supply. Joining us from Amherst, Massachusetts, is co-founder and executive director of Earth Action Network, Lois Barber. Lois, hi. Hi, it's nice to be here. Or should I say, um, right on. When I hear this song, I kind of revert back to my roots. Right. So do I. You know, one of our symbols for this campaign on our poster is a light bulb in the shape of a fist. And it says, power to the people. And um, I think it really talks about this transition of how now energy is where power is. Well, exactly what is it that you're trying to do? Well, we're trying to introduce in the United States very successful, proven legislation that increases the shift and the transition from using fossil fuels to clean, renewable energy. I was looking on the Earth Action webpage, and there's a link to your campaign, Power to the People. And the legislation that you want to introduce here is based upon legislation that first showed up in Europe, in Germany. Right. Germany, Denmark, Spain have all been leaders. And what is that legislation specifically? Well, it does three things. It requires utility companies to buy all the renewable energy that's produced in their region. They can't have favorites. They can't, you know, just buy oil and coal and not buy renewable energy. Secondly, they have to pay a certain price for that renewable energy that's set by a board. And thirdly, they have to pay that price for a very specific number of years. Usually it's 15 to 20 years. It's a very decentralized model. It's called uh, feed-in tariff. That's a, a mouthful. It is. It, it was named this in Europe. The words really don't have a lot of meaning here in the United States. They're actually a little scary. Tariff always makes me think of taxes. So tariff has a different meaning in Europe. But the idea of feed-in comes from that individual producers can feed the electricity that they produce into the grid and get paid for it. Has it been successful in Europe? Oh, it's been amazing. It's just, I mean, it's made Germany the absolute number one leader in renewable energy worldwide. It's created over 230,000 jobs in the renewable energy sector in Germany. It's helped Germany meet its renewable energy goals of 12% of the renewable energy now comes from renewables. It met those goals three years early. They're now the number one exporter of solar panels and other renewable energy technology. But I, I remember, you know, reading about this kind of stuff, uh, living off the grid in the whole Earth catalog. That was decades ago. And I'm just wondering, uh, do I have to live in a yurt? <laughs> <laughs> no, although it's not a bad idea. I just visited a yurt last weekend. It was charming. No, you know, and I really know about this issue from my personal life, too. In uh, 1971, with a small group of people, I went to northern British Columbia, Canada, as a sort of retreat from the industrialized world. 
and um, tried to live as simply and sustainably as possible. And one of the things we did was develop our own hydroelectric system off the creek that ran by our house. So I really got very personally familiar with what energy means. This isn't a new idea, but it's an idea that's now necessary. I mean, in 1971, it was sort of a bit of a luxury to be able to go and be part of the Back to the Land movement. But nowadays, it's not an option. Everybody has to be part of this movement of switching from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Now, your campaign uh, targets nine states, right, in the United States? Right. Uh-huh. One of those is Michigan. And they already have legislation pending that would accomplish many of your goals. Am I right? That's right. Representative Kathleen Law, um, just as we were getting started with our campaign here, we learned that she was a little bit ahead of us. She had already introduced a piece of legislation. Lois, how likely do you think uh, the American public is to embrace not just the goals, but the means and the methods to become, you know, basically energy independent of the big companies? Well, I think the American people, once they learn about this type of legislation, are actually going to demand it from our government because it helps meet their needs. It'll create jobs. You know, every state that produces renewable energy will be able to keep the revenue from that renewable energy within their state to help meet state budgets. Well, Lois, thank you very much. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure to be here. Lois Barber is the co-founder and executive director of Earth Action Network, which is collaborating with the World Future Council on the Power to the People campaign. Now, if somebody asked you what a frost line was, you might think Robert Frost, who had a lot of good lines. Good fences make good neighbors, or maybe whose woods these are, I think I know. Frost had a great sense of the countryside around his New England home, and he might well have appreciated a book we've been featuring occasionally on Living on Earth. It's called Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape. Barry Lopez and Deborah Guartney edited the book, choosing authors to define features of landscapes near and dear to them. Today, Eve Salidas of Homer, Alaska, defines Frostline. Frostline. In Arctic and subarctic landscapes, the frost line is the lower limit of permanently frozen ground, or permafrost. In places such as Barrow, an Inupiaq Eskimo village on Alaska's Arctic coast, the frost line is more than 1,000 feet deep. On a fool's errand in 1881, Lieutenant Henry Ray, the leader of the first Arctic science station in Barrow, supervised the digging of a pit to measure temperatures of frozen ground. Of this experiment, writer Charles Walforth writes, according to local legend, he wanted to find the bottom of the permafrost. Weeks of digging produced a pit over 37 feet deep. We have no record of what the natives thought of this activity, Walforth writes, but practically enough, an Inupiaq family appropriated the hole as a prodigious ice cellar. It was used to preserve whale meat for over 100 years. In temperate climates, frost line has a different meaning and is as important to farmers as tides are to mariners, as it indicates the maximum depth that ground freezes in winter. Those who have crops at stake speak of the frost line of a particular winter, of a series of winters, or of the most extreme depth ever recorded. Even warm mountainous places, such as the Hawaiian Islands, have their frost lines, altitudes below which freezing doesn't occur. Eve Salidas is a writer, teacher, and marine biologist from Homer, Alaska. Her definition of frost line appears in the book Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape, edited by Barry Lopez and Deborah Guartney. 
You can hear our program anytime on our website or get a download for your MP3 player. The address is LOE.org. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org, and you can call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Coming up, a scientist fact-checks science fiction flicks. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. They're out there, lurking in the deep, hungry, waiting. Actually, sharks aren't all that dangerous. According to the international shark attack file, there were just 62 confirmed unprovoked shark attacks on people in all of 2006. That very same year, 150 people were killed by falling coconuts. Still, you don't want to have a close encounter with a great white in the deep blue. So some beaches where sharks share the water with swimmers are trying out new ways to protect people. In Cape Town, South Africa, they've created a network of spotters who sound an alarm when danger lurks below. Terry Fitzpatrick lived to tell our tale. If you're swimming along Cape Town's ocean beach, this is a sound you do not want to hear. This is just a test, but about 50 times a year, this horn and an even louder siren signal an actual alarm. It means a great white shark is swimming toward shore. Yvonne Camp of the Cape Town Shark Spotter Patrol says the warnings work. It really just takes a few minutes. That siren goes and everybody knows the drill. The shark spotters also walk up and down and blow a whistle and wave hands. What, you know, whatever it takes to get the last people out the water. The Shark Spotters are a team of 20 specially trained lookouts funded by the city of Cape Town, the World Wildlife Fund, and local surf shops. Their work begins not on the beach, but in the mountains high above shoreline. Musenberg Beach Watch from Musenberg Mountain Watch. Here, Tracy Provins peers at the ocean using high power binoculars. Visibility is 10%. I got about 20 surfers and 10 by this copy. Province says a great white shark is hard to miss. They can grow up to 20 feet long. It's a dark shadow. Most of the time they don't come up. If they come up, you'll just see the fin. Province uses a walkie-talkie radio to warn the beaches below. She tracks everything in the water because wherever there's prey, predators follow. I have a school of dolphins, copy. Great white sharks are a particular problem in Cape Town. At least 250 of them come to feed at a seal colony that lives on an island close to shore. Marine biologist Allison Cock at the University of Cape Town has been using underwater radio beacons to study the sharks. The beacons look like thick gray pencils with fish hooks at the end. And what we have here is a acoustic monitor and what these do is they work in conjunction with a transmitter, which we tag the sharks with. So when we get up close and personal with the sharks, we try and attach these transmitters to them. And this transmitter sends out a unique code. Cox research reveals that sharks stay away from shore when there are newborn pups to eat at the seal colony. 
But at this time of year, sharks rove closer to the beach in search of other prey. She says great whites are not man-eaters by nature, but they are inquisitive. White sharks are particularly confident, curious animals. They're really interested in people, and for the most part, they don't do anything. They swim by, they have a look, they swim by, and they carry on swimming. But with more than 100 teeth, even a curious nibble from a great white can maim or kill a person. Cape Town's shark spotter program began three years ago after a series of attacks. There were calls to cull the shark population, but great whites are an endangered species, and Cox says killing them would upset the region's balance of marine wildlife. Great white sharks are the top predator in our waters here in Cape Town. So this means that they have a lot of influence on all the species below them. They don't only prey on seals, they prey on different uh, shark species, fish populations, rays, all kinds of things. Shark spotter Yvonne Camp says safety nets were ruled out for Cape Town because sharks, dolphins, turtles, penguins and whales get tangled in them and die. She says her network of warning stations is a healthy compromise. When people's lives are threatened, everyone's really keen on, on keeping the people safe and not so worried about the sharks. What we're trying to do is find a balance where we're keeping people safe, but we're also not harming the ocean. Many surfers and swimmers support this approach. People should leave the water first before taking out any sharks. You know, it's their world and they should be left alone. I think the sharks have just as much right to be in the water as we have, and they're entitled to be there. I think if they wanted to attack people, there'd be more attacks, because so, there are a lot out there. So basically, you take your chances. Copy, look out. Copy, look Okay, thank you guys, stand by. The shark spotting program does more than safeguard the beach. Yvonne Camp says it increases awareness about the role sharks play in the marine ecosystem and it provides jobs. The shark spotting program is primarily a safety program, but it's also creating opportunities for people like the shark spotters. A lot of them were unemployed. So there's a lot of other spin-offs from the program besides the safety of the people in the water. Okay, Middleburg Mountain Works, I just need a situation. Please give me your situation, please. The spotting team seems to be beating the odds. According to Shark Attack File, a group that tracks incidents worldwide, roughly 90 shark bites are reported each year. On average, six people are killed. But since the spotters began protecting 10 popular beaches, they haven't had a single shark attack. For Living on Earth, I'm Terry Fitzpatrick in Cape Town. From Bruce the Shark to a close encounter of a different kind. E.T. Phone Home. Extraterrestrials are extra popular on the big screen. In fact, a third of the top grossing movies are science fiction films. Think Jurassic Park, The Invasion of the Body Snatchers, AI, Blade Runner, Spider-Man. Sci-fi flicks feature flights of fantasy that can transport us beyond our imaginations but not all the science in the movies measures up to the standards of Sidney Perkowitz. He's a physicist at Emory University and author of the new book, Hollywood Science, Movies, Science, and the End of the World. Professor Perkowitz, welcome to Living on Earth. My pleasure, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Or, or should I say, um, Klaktu Barada Nikto? Well, that would win you favor with a lot of science fiction fans, that's for sure. Klaktu Barada Nikto. That's from the 1951 classic, uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still. You have a picture of it uh, right on your book. Latu, Barada, 
Nikto. What does Klaatu Barada Nikto mean? Apparently, it's in- instructions to the deadly robot Gort to do the right thing after his boss Klaatu has been shot down by the military. Well, let's listen to some of uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still. This is the original. We interrupt this program to give you a bulletin just received from one of our naval units at sea. A large object traveling at supersonic speed is headed over the North Atlantic toward the east coast of the United States. You say in your book, and I think rightly, that this is a science fiction classic. What in your mind makes it a classic? At the time, which was the 50s, and we have to cast our mind back to what that meant, we were in the middle of the Cold War, and it was just a few years after an atomic bomb had first been exploded. So this is a movie that has some science in it, or pseudoscience, but really it has a message. Be very careful with nuclear weapons. And that makes it a classic because of the message it carries, but also because it's a good, tightly constructed movie. I came here to give you these facts. But if you threaten to extend your violence... This earth of yours will be reduced to a burned-out cinder. Science fiction has been a huge part of the film industry from the, well, almost from the very beginning. I was surprised when I researched it. If if you do the, the sums, it turns out there's been at least one major science fiction film made per month since 1902, and 1902 is not very long after movies began. So, yes, it's been a continuing thread for decades and decades. The one I remember is from, I think, the 20s. It's Metropolis, silent film. I put that on my uh, 10 best list because it was such a strong and far-seeing film, although it was made in the 20s. It has things in it that still many directors could be envious of. Like what? First of all, the powerful use of of black and white, of course, that's all they had. But this director, Fritz Lang, really knew how to use shades of gray. Secondly, just the the audacity of the projection. It talked about technology 100 years in the future that we still don't have. Sometimes the science um, kind of speeds over the science fiction, and these films get it wrong. I'm thinking of Star Trek, um, when they have transponders. And now we have cell phones that make transponders look like antiques. Absolutely. I mean, uh, basic science, maybe the movies don't do so well in projecting technology. They're phenomenal, but the real technology is even more phenomenal. So your example of cell phones is a, is a perfect illustration of that. However, our cell phones won't reach from planet to planet. Hmm. And I guess in Star Trek, maybe the transponders will do that. Let's talk about some of the science fiction movies that really, well, for lack of a better word, they're real stinkers. <laughs> okay. Uh, one of the ones topping your list is the core. It was a secret government program known as Project Destiny. We're building a weapon that could generate targeted seismic events. Designed to use earthquakes to attack our enemies. I'm getting a seismic reading. It was a perfect, untraceable weapon. Destiny is a go. Until something went wrong. The core of the Earth has stopped spinning. Without it, radiation will create superstorms. Microwaves will literally cook our planet. I hate when that happens. You know, it, it just makes a bad day. It could ruin a weekend. <laughs> and in this movie, it ruins the whole Earth. So they put in this premise, and I think every movie is allowed one premise. Even if it's wrong, you're allowed one premise. So that's their premise. But every statement about science after that premise is dead wrong. It's remarkable how wrong this movie is. But is good science really the object of science fiction? Isn't it just, well, to entertain? Movies are about making money. 
I, I, Bruce, I think that's a great point. I think we have to recognize that the Hollywood studios are not in the business of making instructional educational films. They want to entertain. My take on this as a scientist is we should accept that fact and then use the movies as they are and use the science in them to teach some science. Even if the science is wrong, you can use it to teach science. And I think that would be a smart approach for the future. Let's listen to, well, there's no mistaking what this film is. Of course, this is from Stanley Kubrick's extraordinary film, 2001, A Space Odyssey. People who study the subject seriously say that that movie and Close Encounters of the Third Kind are the two films that lifted science fiction out of B-movie status into major movie status. So what you say is absolutely right, and again, those of us who saw the movie when it first came out remember being stunned by what were just the most remarkable special effects you could imagine at the time. Some science fiction movies have made a real contribution to our consciousness and have consequence. I'm thinking of the movie Soylent Green. New York City in the year 2022. Nothing runs anymore. Nothing works. But the people are the same. And the people will do anything to get what they need. This is the police! What they need most is Soylent Green. The supply of Soylent Green has been exhausted. I think it helped give birth to the modern environmental movement. Yes, that, that seems to be very, very true. That movie goes back to the 1970s. It's about a world set uh, in the 2000s, 2020 or so in which um, environmental badness has really ruined the earth. You can't grow enough crops to feed people. And uh, that was an example of a movie that pointed out to quite a wide audience the consequences of misusing our resources. What is the secret of Soylent Green? I'm not going to tell the secret, but boy. No, let's not tell. So a lot of people have given that movie a bunch of credit for starting the green movement, people thinking about the environment. And other movies since then have picked that up. Soylent Green was you know, about, well, global warming too, right? Absolutely. Everyone in the movie comments on the fact that winter has gone. Uh, there's no more winter. It's always too hot. Air conditioning is an unimaginable luxury. And that's because of global warming. Also, the, uh, there's not enough food uh, because global warming has killed plankton. And in fact, there's now scientific evidence that that is happening. So that movie was quite foreseeing. Science fiction movies really can, and I think the best ones do, excite the imagination. And then they have consequence in the real world. I'm thinking of something you wrote in your book. You wrote about uh, MIT scientist uh, Cynthia Brazel. Who, uh, who designed a robot called Kismet, the most expressive robot of its time. And she said she got the idea, well, from R2-D2. Isn't that remarkable? Uh, and even when the movie science is not correct or maybe could be correct but doesn't yet exist, it has inspired young people to become scientists. I think that's one spinoff we don't recognize as being a good, powerful effect of science fiction films. I don't know that any sociologist has studied this, but there is tons and tons of anecdotal evidence that scientists who watch science fiction early become inspired toward that kind of career. That happened to me and many, many other people. 
Well, okay, Professor, I want to thank you very much. It's really been terrific. I've had a great time. Or maybe I should say instead of goodbye, I should say... Hasta la vista, baby. And may the force be with you, Bruce. Or as Mel Brooks says in the movie Spaceballs, may the Schwartz be with you. Sidney Perkowitz is author of the new book, Hollywood Science. On the next Living on Earth, diamond miners and ex-soldiers help reclaim war-torn Sierra Leone. They will tell us stories about how they were suffering during the war, but they're getting benefits from our project, in part because they helped to ruin the land in the first place, and they now have the opportunity to put it back into productive use. Swords into plowshares, diamond mines into rice fields. Next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week on African soil in Zimbabwe. At the break of dawn, a troop of baboons bark, their echoes bouncing off a 300-foot-high granite cliff. Bernie Krauss recorded these baboons barking in the southeastern part of the country for his wildsanctuary.com CD called African Safari, Zimbabwe. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Emily Taylor, and Jeff Young, with help from Jennifer Basler and Sarah Calkins. Our interns are Kathleen O'Neill, Annie Gia, and Margaret Rosano. Today's show was engineered by Noel Flatt. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Bruce Kellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, and Pax World Mutual Funds, Socially and Environmentally Sustainable Investing, PaxWorld, for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI, Public Radio International.